Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you really stop to think about it, it's an astonishing fact that we spend a third of our lives asleep. And part of that time, we're dreaming. What goes on during this unconscious state that consumes so much of our lives? And how can we use our dreams to improve our waking hours? Here to unpack the mysterious world of dreams is Alice Robb, the author of Why We Dream, the transformative power of our nightly journey. Today on the show, Alice first shares some background on the nature of dreams, why their content is often stress-inducing, and how they can influence our waking hours, from impacting our emotional health to helping us be more creative. We then turn to how to get more out of your dreams, including the benefits of keeping a dream journal and talking about your dreams with others. We also get into the world of lucid dreaming and some tips for how to start controlling your dreams. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is dreams. All right, Alice Robb, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So a while back ago, you wrote a book called Why We Dream, The Transformative Power of Our Nightly Journey, uh, where you take a deep dive into the science and the cultural history of dreams. What led you down that path? Why did you write a book about dreams? I have always been interested in dreams. I have always had very vivid dreams ever since I was a child, which might be related to, I haven't always been the best sleeper. I might wake up a couple times in the night. And I remember when I was around the time that I started thinking about doing this as a book, I was just having such intense dreams, some of them nightmares, and they were impacting my day so much. I was working in a magazine and I would just find myself kind of like, you know, something would trigger a memory of a dream during the day. I would just be kind of... um felt impacted by them. And it felt like there wasn't really a way to talk about those experiences. And that in the world that I was, you know, moving in, dreams were kind of seen as this taboo subject. They were kind of boring. Maybe it's a little narcissistic to talk about your dreams. But I started reading more about them. And I read some, you know, I found that there was an amazing body of work from both the hard sciences, social sciences on dreams. And I just wanted to spend some time delving into that. Let's talk about what goes on in the brain when we do dream. If we dream, it's going to happen in the REM cycle, the, uh, you know, the rapid eye movement phase of sleep. Is that right? Yeah. So one thing that sometimes surprises people is that we all basically, I mean, unless we're, you know, maybe 
very drunk or very high or extremely depressed, we're typically having dreams every night, every time you have a REM cycle. So most people, depending how long you sleep, have four or five REM cycles every night. And they get progressively longer and more intense over the course of the night. So when you first fall asleep, you might just have a little bit of kind of playback, like you're brushing your teeth again in your dreams. And then it's towards the end of the night that you're having those more intense story-like dreams that are the ones that we tend to remember and talk about. So that's why if you if you wake up more frequently during the night, you'll also have more opportunities to wake up during a REM cycle. Okay. So we dream typically four to five times during the night. So it's not like one continuous dream the entire night. It's going on and off. Yeah. You can have something called REM rebound, where if you're deprived of REM, you can then have like a very intense, your brain's kind of catching up on it. So that if you're doing something that suppresses REM, like drinking or drugs, and then you stop doing that, you can have very intense REM rebound and kind of dream all night. But more typically, it's distributed throughout the night. Does anything change in our brain whenever we start dreaming, like in the electrical signaling or the chemical release? Yeah. So the state that your brain is in during dreaming looks a little bit like your brain when you're awake and free associating or daydreaming, like a little bit like an intense kind of fantasizing. And this is partly why it can be very good for creative thinking, because the parts of your brain that produce emotion are very fired up and dopamine is is surging and the parts of your brain that are involved in rational thinking and decision making are quieter. We're going to talk about the benefits of dreaming to our emotional health here in a bit, but like do the researchers who study this stuff do they think dreaming does it serve any physiological purpose? Like does our brain physically undergo changes that we have to go through only through dreaming to maintain brain health? Yeah. Well, so it's a little bit hard to disentangle like what are the physiological benefits of dreaming and what are the physiological benefits of sleep? I mean, we all know that sleep has enormous impact on mental and physical health. Sleep deprivation leads to increased risk of you know, strokes, heart attacks, all kinds of diseases. It's very detrimental to learning. But there have been some studies that deprive rats of REM sleep specifically. There's one uh, way they study this where when you go into REM sleep, your whole body is paralyzed except for your eyes. So if you put a rat on like a little dish, like a little floating dish, then they will (laughs) fall asleep and they can sleep. But then when they go into REM, they'll fall into the water and wake up. So you can, I mean, if you're, if you really want to torture a rat, you can deprive a rat of REM sleep in this way. Um, And they found that rats that are deprived of sleep completely will die in a couple of weeks. And if they're deprived of REM sleep, they will also die. It might take like four to six weeks. And they'll also perform worse at like survival related tasks. So if they're, you know, in a maze and they've been deprived of REM sleep, they won't do as well. So I think we can kind of intuit that some of this applies to, to humans as well. But REM sleep tends to be the really deep sleep where you're kind of doing that, like consolidating new memories and forming new associations. Well, okay. So whenever we have REM sleep, that's when we dream, there are changes going on in our brain. Dopamine is being released. It's almost like we're awake and half asleep at the same time when we're dreaming. Let's talk about dream content. 
are dreams primarily visual? Is it just we see stuff or can we also hear stuff in our dreams? Yeah, they're very visual. And and we all dream in different ways, um, first of all, which is why, I mean, people often will ask me to say, you know, I dreamed about this, so what does it mean? And unfortunately, unless I know them extremely well and know their dreaming patterns in history, I can't usually answer that because we all have our own dream repertoire and our own dream languages. So if you're an extremely auditory, if you're a musician, your dreams are more likely to feature music and sound. But yes, typically our dreams are very visual, uh, visually intense. And sight is for most people the, the dominant sense in dreams. And most people now dream in color. There was actually one really interesting study I read that found that people who grew up with black and white TV were more likely to dream in black and white. And there was another study where a scientist had his students wear goggles all day that turned everything red and had them sleep in a sleep lab, woke them up and asked them about their dreams and found that they started to have like red tinted visual imagery in their dreams. So they can also be impacted. The way we dream can be impacted by our recent experience as well. Okay. So we we can hear in dreams. So does, do blind people, they just, they typically just hear stuff in their dreams. They don't see things. It actually depends at what age they lost their sight. If they lost it very young or if they've always been blind, then they probably won't be able to see in their dreams. But if they lost it in adulthood, then they might still be able to see. Is the content of most dreams pleasant, neutral, bad? What does the uh, research say there? Yeah. So this really surprised me because when I went into this project, I think I had the stereotype that dreams are supposed to be pleasant. I don't know. We talk about things being dreamy as a good thing. Um, and Freud talked about dreams as wish fulfillment and showing us our repressed desires. I think that was kind of a just a cliche for a long time. And then in the 1940s, there were a couple of researchers who actually started applying content analysis to people's dream reports. So they collected thousands of dreams and then they basically coded them. So they coded like different interactions and they would label them as, you know, an instance of aggression or persecution or happiness. They found that most dream content was actually negative, I think up to about two thirds in this set, which has been borne out by other research and that the most common emotions and dreams were things like anxiety, fear, helplessness. So yeah, dreams are actually pretty nightmarish for the most, most part, the time, which made me feel better <laughs> about my own dream life. In this research where they code things and try to you know, look at content specifically, are there things that people dream about the most? Is it about relationships? Is it about scary situations? What they ate during the day? Like what, what are we typically dreaming about? Yeah. I mean, it's different for different groups of people and it changes throughout the lifespan. So kids tend to have much simpler dreams. Very young kids will dream about just kind of basic sleeping and eating. And then you can actually kind of track with developmental landmarks, how their dreams develop. So they'll, they'll start incorporating more human characters. They'll start to take on a more active role and kind of be the protagonist of their own dreams around seven or eight or so, and then just continue to develop in complexity. But in terms of what people dream about, I mean, studies from the 
40s found that, and of course, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of bizarreness and there are certain motifs that are, are common across cultures like flying and actually teeth falling out. Like that's like a human universal dream. It's a horrible one. Scientists think like it might be from like these old memories we have of losing our teeth as children. But yeah, I mean, relationships, a lot of survival-related activities, which kind of fits in with an evolutionary hypothesis that I can talk about. But they also found, you know, that, not a shocker, like, men tend to dream about sex more than women do. Men tended to also dream about other men more than women tend to dream sort of evenly about both men and women. may have changed since the 1940s. But yeah, a lot of, you know, fear and flight and being chased by things. These are all pretty common dream scenarios. And what's interesting about too, about dreams and the content of it, going back to that idea you said about kids, when they first start dreaming, it's very like, I'm asleep, I'm eating Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then eventually they have other characters popping up in their dreams. And mm-hmm. these other characters, they have their own agency. Like we understand that even though this is in my head, I don't have control over these other characters inside of my head. They still have their agency and I have my agency. I think that's what's so interesting about dreams and why they're so powerful and why they do come up so much in in religion. Because, it, yeah, it feels like you can be surprised in your dreams, which is kind of a paradox, right? Because you're the author, you're making them. It's like, you know, sometimes fiction writers talk about, you know, this character just showed me who they were. It's like, okay. But that is what's happening in dreams. So they feel like they're coming from outside of ourselves. You know, Freud would say that every character in a dream represents a different aspect of yourself, which is something I think about when I'm trying to understand my own dreams. But there's something very kind of playful about that. Can the content of your dreams influence how you experience real life or relationships the next day? Yeah, definitely. I mean, dreams are so intense. The emotions are are so real. Combined with this, we have this sense that even though we know we came up with them, we kind of feel like they're coming from outside ourselves. And even when we forget them, we can be tricked because we do forget most, most people forget most dreams, but we can be triggered during the day. Also, dreams can show us things that we're trying not to think about. So, you know, maybe you do feel a certain way about a relationship and that person is being really mean to you in your dreams and that makes you reflect on the relationship. But even if it's totally like you don't see any reason for having a dream where you've cast, you know, someone you love as a perpetrator, that can absolutely still impact how you treat them the next day. There was this study that found like couples were more likely to argue in real life if they had, you know, had a dream about cheating on each other. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast have had that experience where their spouse, they had like a dream where where you did something wrong in the dream. Like, I don't know, whatever. You just, could be anything. It couldn't even be cheating. It could have been (laughs) like, I I didn't uh, pick up the kids when I was supposed to. And they get angry at you in the dream. And then when they wake up the next day, like they're, they're, they're still angry at you. And you're like, what did I do? Yeah. I didn't do anything. Why are you angry at me? It's like, <laughs> oh, I got mad at you in my dream and I'm still mad at you. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. I mean, the feelings are real. You can't just, uh, can't just delete them. Okay. So for millennia, humans have looked to dreams to find meaning about life's 
big decisions. What role did dreams play in early human cultures? Well, they were much more integrated with life, with daily life. So, you know, doctors would use dreams in diagnosis. People would use dreams to try to predict the future. There were Native American communities where dreams were really revered and communities would even like act out their dreams together to prevent something from that had happened in a dream from happening in real life. They were just taken more seriously until maybe a hundred years ago or so, 150 years ago. Yeah. You even talked about some of the founding fathers. I think it was John Adams and Benjamin Rush. Rush was a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure this is why he did this, but they would write each other their dreams. They would have these correspondences like, well, here's what I dreamed about. And yeah. like, oh, I had dreamed about this. Yeah. It was just, yeah. it was something you did. You just talked about your dreams. Like even families in the 19th century in America probably sat around the fire and said, Hey, I had this dream. Let's talk about what it means. Yeah. There were dreams in newspapers. There was, I mean, like the late 19th century, there were newspapers in New York that would like illustrate people's dreams or there was like a dreaming contest where people would write in with their best dreams. I think there were just a lot more outlets for people to talk about this thing that we're all experiencing every day. And people would look to their dreams to figure out, they would actually use it to, to, to predict the future or like, I saw yeah. this in my dreams. So this means this is going to happen. But then Freud came along Mm-hmm. How did Freud influence how we think about dreams in the West? Well, Freud was kind of a double-edged sword for dreams because on the one hand, he made dreams almost the center of psychoanalysis. The interpretation of dreams came out in 1900, very influential. He asked his patients about their dreams. But on the other hand, his theory was not totally right, we now know. So his theory of one of his theories of dreams was that um, dreams are usually wish fulfillment and they're showing us things that we secretly desire, but we can't handle, you know, that we desire it. So we've suppressed it. I mean, I think he was right that there's a lot of symbolism in dreams, but he thought that most things in dreams were symbols for sex. And I think that made people kind of embarrassed to talk about dreams. They came to seem like a little dirty and I don't think there's that much basis for thinking that like climbing a ladder is actually a sexual metaphor. The other part of the Freud picture is that Freud became so associated with dreams that when he kind of went out of style and he seems to be coming back which is interesting but when he went out of style there's big backlash to Freud in like the 70s and 80s dreams got a little bit swept under the rug and there were therapies like CBT, which were more results-based and didn't leave a lot of room for dreams. So I think dreams were a little bit neglected for a few decades post-Freud. Well, let's talk about this idea of what the dream researchers are finding out now. So Freud had this idea that you know dreams can mean something. They're, they're symbolic. Mm-hmm. But do dreams have universal archetypical meanings? I'm sure everyone's seen those dream dictionaries where you're like, well, if I dreamt about teeth falling out, it means this. Uh, if I dreamt about a snake, it means this. Does that hold any water? Yeah. So dream dictionaries are very popular and I understand why, because dreams can be so distressing that you're like, why did I dream about, you know, whatever, my teeth falling out. But unfortunately, I would not put a lot of stock in dream dictionaries because 
we all have such, I mean, different associations. Like our dreams are, you know, they're inspired by our lives. So if I dream about a cat, I happen to hate cats, that cat is going to represent something very different for me than it is for someone who loves cats, for example. But there are certain kind of archetypes and patterns that exist, particularly around like trauma and grief and mourning. So there was one researcher who studied a bunch of people who were grieving the loss of a loved one and found that their dreams actually followed a trajectory, almost like the stages of grief that we talk about. So like in the immediate aftermath of a loss, they would have really disturbing dreams that the person was alive again. There's still kind of like a a kind of denial. And grief is a time when even people who don't remember a lot of dreams often say that they do. And then they might have, as they kind of moved on in the grieving process, they might have dreams about the person saying goodbye or going on a journey or they see them at the tarmac and they're getting on a plane. And then later on, maybe years later, they would report like more pleasant dreams about just seeing the person and kind of hanging out or exchanging words of comfort. So it sounds like dreams, they can actually help with grieving, sadness, uh, stress. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was another study of people who were going through divorce that looked at their dreams right after the divorce and then a year later that actually found that people who were having more dreams about their ex right after the divorce were coping better a year later. So there's definitely a lot of work, emotional work that we're doing in our dreams. And actually, um, with like severe depression, there's a really marked decrease in dream recall. So that might be kind of a chicken and egg thing where you're not doing the work you you can't do the work of like emotional processing in your dreams and that contributes to the depression and the depression prevents dreaming. But yeah, and that can be a sign of a depression lifting can be the return of dreams. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. 
With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So what do dream researchers think is the purpose of dreaming psychologically? Why do we essentially live another life inside of our heads when we're unconscious at night? I mean, there are a lot of theories. I mean, there's this evolutionary hypothesis, which is that we're practicing for stressful events in a low stakes environment. So take something like the exam dream, which is another almost universal dream that you um, you have a test. I mean, I, I still have this all the time. And I graduated from college more than a decade ago. You're going to an exam and you overslept it. You forgot to take the, ta- the test, et cetera. And the idea is that you do that and then you remember in real life, oh, I have to set an alarm for that project or this presentation or whatever. And that also would kind of explain why, in addition to these 
<laughs> very modern anxiety dreams like exams. We also have these, even people who live in cities will have dreams about like being chased by wild animals, things like that. But yeah, in terms of emotional processing, I think it's, dreams can be a kind of exposure therapy where things that you aren't quite ready to confront in real life, you can kind of start working through them in your dreams. There's an idea too that dreaming is a chance for our brains to be creative and even solve problems. What does the research say about problem solving in our dreams? Yeah, well, in your dreams, you're in this kind of looser state where you're working with a much wider range of memories, right? So you're bringing in, it's like the soup and you've got like the sandwich you ate yesterday, but also like your friend from middle school who you hadn't thought about in years. So it's this time where we're kind of letting ourselves go cognitively and coming up with, yeah, just like more unexpected connections. And I think this is partly why a lot of people find they're more creative right when they wake up. And yeah, there's studies that show that people give like more surprising answers on word tests when they're woken out of a REM stage, things like that. And of course, I mean, countless examples of writers and artists and musicians coming up with breakthroughs in their dreams. Yeah, I think, was it Paul McCartney? Like it was, uh, which song? Let It Be? Or no, which one was it that he, he, had, a, he had? He had the tune in a dream. No, it, it was yesterday. It was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, had, he heard the tune for yesterday and he woke up and he had the tune. So he came up with like some like random lyrics. It was something about scrambled eggs. And then he wrote the lyrics later. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, I read like while I was working on the book, I read like... Graham Greene has a published dream dictionary. Nabokov has a published dream dictionary. Like they've been such a part of, um, yeah, of artist process. Yeah. I think uh, Salvador Dali, he did hypnotic or hyp- hypno. It's like, yeah, like hypnagogic imagery, yeah. which are, those are the images like right as you're falling asleep. I don't know if you've ever noticed them where you're like just in between and you can, it's almost like a little bit like lucid dreaming and that you have a little bit of control you're kind of like seeing stuff and you're aware that you're seeing it. But yeah, those are like kind of on the dreaming spectrum. Yeah. So he would hold like a, a heavy key or something metal in his hands. And then whenever he fell asleep, you know, you become limp, your body goes limp and he would drop it and make a noise and he'd wake up and like whatever was in his head, he's like, all right, I'm going to paint melting clocks now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In addition to being related to creativity and problem solving, uh, dreaming is also connected to just learning in general and language acquisition in particular. What's the connection there? There was actually a study of students who were in a French immersion program that found that they had not only did they have actually have spent a greater proportion of the night in REM sleep while they were in the program, but also the students who started dreaming about French more made greater gains. And there was a study at Harvard in the 90s by a guy named Robert Stickgold. And he was inspired by an experience he had where he went mountain climbing with his family. And it was like really intense day. And then as he was falling asleep, noticed that he was replaying a really difficult moment, right kind of as he was falling asleep. And then so he devised a study where he got a bunch of students to sleep in the sleep lab and had them play Tetris during the day. So he got like some people who had never played, some people who were experts. And then he would wake the, or a researcher would wake them up um, like at various points in the night and ask about their dreams and found that 
most of them were dreaming about Tetris and particularly the ones who were new to it. So they were kind of like working extra hard in their dreams to master this new skill. And then dreaming about Tetris would correlate to doing better at it. And it's been replicated. Yeah. Yeah. So what all this research is showing about dreams is that it does something in our brain. Like we can solve problems. It can help us process stress, help us process grieving. It can help us be more creative. And so what this research is suggesting is that, you know, we shouldn't uh, take our dreams for granted. We can actually use them to our benefit. We're kind of going back to uh, the role dreams played in humans' lives, you know, 100, 200 years ago. So let's talk about what some of the research says about how we can get more out of our dreams. And one thing that the research shows that keeping a dream journal can be really beneficial. What are the benefits of keeping a dream journal? Yeah. I mean, it's so easy, I think, to get more from your dreams because you are probably already having them. You're just forgetting them. So it's a little bit like, you know, you have this whole source of of insight and knowledge and potential creative ideas. And if we don't keep a dream journal or do some practice to remember them. We're just kind of throwing away this potential gift. And it's pretty easy for most people to remember more of their dreams. One of the biggest things is actually just, um, this might sound kind of woo, but it's true, but just believing that they are important and do have insight and kind of saying that to yourself as you fall asleep and reminding yourself of your intention to remember your dreams you know, if we've convinced you. And yeah, a dream journal, I think is probably the most powerful tool. When I was working on the book, I kept a dream journal. I mean, it's on my phone, but just like in the notes app, because I was thinking about dreams all day. Like I was remembering dreams four times a night. Like I would wake up every couple hours, write them down and go back to sleep. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a way of life, but it was interesting. It's kind of proof of concept. But yeah, I mean, there are apps you can use. Some people do voice notes, phone, paper, diary. I think the other big thing with a dream journal is to really make it a habit. So even if you don't remember your dreams, just write that in the morning, like just write no recall, um, just to kind of reinforce the habit. And then also to do it literally first thing, because any kind of engagement with the physical world can just kind of eliminate those memories. And when you're writing this stuff down, is it just stream of consciousness? Like you were like, I dreamt that I was riding a unicycle while mm-hmm. listening. It's just, you don't have, you don't try to put a structure to you just kind of just yeah. whatever. Okay. And lots of, I mean, like if I'm doing it, you know, honestly, there are lots of gaps. I think this is one of the reasons that dreams are hard to recall, right? Is like, they typically don't come in narratives, they're images and they're disconnected. And sometimes people will try to like, impose a narrative on them. But yeah, I mean, you don't have to do that. You can just leave question marks or let them kind of flow. What insights have you gotten about your life from keeping a dream journal? (laughs) I mean, I'm kind of a believer that like one dream doesn't necessarily like, I'm not going to like change my life based on a dream. But if I keep having a repetitive dream, that's something to look at in my life. I think they've helped me realize things that I maybe didn't want to realize. I definitely think that doing it increased my self-awareness. Yeah. Were you able to notice a pattern with your dream journal? You know, if you're having really distressing dreams, were you able to correlate that with you're going through a stressful time in your life in awake world? 
Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think sometimes if I was going through a truly stressful experience, I would take a break. Like it could be too much to keep a dream journal during those periods. But other times they would kind of like, you know, they can also be very funny. I think your dreams have like a real sense of humor and they can make things seem a little lighter. Like, I don't know. I remember I was stressed about my about this book coming out and I had a dream about my agent and someone I knew in middle school chasing me down the street. And I don't know, it's just kind of allowed me to be like, okay, this is like ridiculous. It's just a book. But yeah, I think they're fun dreams. How can talking about your dreams with other people help you gain more understanding? Because that's kind of like you said, it's kind of looked down upon because people are like, I don't want to hear your dream. And also the problem with talking about your dreams is your dreams are so nonsensical. There's no narrative arc. So it's you're just telling someone just like random stuff that's happening in your head. And they're like, well, that's not really interesting. But you've talked about there's actually groups of people getting together where they can just talk about their dreams. Yeah. So actually, I learned about these. this was a trend in the 80s of dream groups. Um, and I learned about it from a therapist who I was interviewing in Manhattan. And I asked if I could come to one of his dream groups, which was like kind of a cross between group therapy and dream analysis. And he said that that would be not really fair to the participants, but he offered to arrange one for a group of my friends. And it's basically a way to like impose a real structure on a dream conversation. So what we did is I printed out a dream of mine. It didn't make a lot of sense. I think it involved Hillary Clinton doing a line dance. And we went through it almost like we were doing like a passage analysis in English class. So like first I read it. Then people asked me questions to clarify the content of the dream. So if there was a car, they would say, like, is it red? And then in the next round, they asked people, everyone had to imagine that it was their own dream. So they would say, okay, you know, if I dreamed about a line dance, it would mean whatever, because I used to line dance with my family. And then you kind of go through a series of stages like this. And it was really, I mean, we ended up spending like an hour and a half six people just talking about one dream and we all enjoyed it and I am still in slash lead a dream group like what eight years later and we meet once a month and we take turns bringing in a dream but it's like we were saying people feel like they need to bring in like a good dream like it has to have a narrative arc and it has to be a certain length but it's so not true because sometimes people bring in a dream that's like four disconnected sentences and you still have just as much to talk about but it's it's sort of therapeutic and ends up kind of feeling like a book club except that you didn't have to read a book and i imagine these other people they bring their own experiences and they might say well it means this or it could mean this mm-hmm. and it might not but it gives you something else to think about like well maybe it could yeah. mean that yeah Yeah. Or it brings up other associations for you. And I mean, I think that's sort of how I look at my own dreams. I try not to be literal about it, but just like what feelings does this evoke? What does this remind me of? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe start a dream group with your family when your kids wake up, take them to school. (laughs) That would be a natural one. Yeah. Yeah, Just talk about your dreams. Let's talk about this, about dreaming, lucid dreaming. Um, Mm -hmm. You talked about, you went through a phase. I think you were in college. Yeah. Peru. I, I went through a similar phase when I was in high school where I found <laughs> some weird website on the internet in the 90s about lucid dreaming. What's lucid dreaming? So lucid dreams are dreams where you 
are aware that you're in a dream and you might even have some level of control over what happens in the dream. So this happens a lot to kids naturally. It's a bit less common in adults unless they're making an effort, but it's super cool. And I got into it when I read, I wonder if this is this book was by the same person you found in the 90s because Stephen LeBurge has really done a ton of both academic and popular work on uh, on lucid dreaming and training people to lucid dream. But I came across this book when I was on um, an archaeological dig in Peru in college and I didn't have a lot of other things to do. There was no internet. So I read this book and started doing these exercises and meditations and started having lucid dreams. And yeah, actually, that was the other origin story of the book because that was a big dream phase. Yeah. So when you're in a lucid dream, you can tell yourself, I'm dreaming. I want to fly now. So I'm going to fly. Yeah. I mean, so there's sort of different levels of lucidity. A lot of people actually experience lucidity when they're in nightmares, sometimes to get out of them. So you might be, you know, let's say you're being like chased by a monster and then you have kind of a flash of awareness and you're like, no, this monster doesn't exist. I'm in a dream. And you wake yourself up. But if you were in a lucid dream, if you use that moment to like become lucid instead, you could say, oh, okay, this monster isn't real. And also now I'm going to fly away and do whatever other like fantasies I might have. And I went on, when I was working on the book, I went on a whole like two week lucid dreaming retreat in Hawaii where we did meditations every day and various exercises to induce lucid dreaming. But I would say the main thing before like trying to get into lucid dreaming would just be to improve your regular dream recall because it's very easy to improve your dream recall. It takes a bit more effort to try to do lucid dreaming, which I think might be why it tends to be like high school kids who get into it, but although it is extremely cool, but if you increase your dream recall and get that to a really good point, often people will just have like a lucid dream or two naturally. So what are some other things you can do besides, you know, doing a dream journal? What are some other things you can do to induce a lucid dream? So Stephen LeBurge, who I think I mentioned, he was the first person to prove the existence of lucid dreaming in the lab when he was a kind of hippie grad student at Stanford has this method that he calls reality checks. So the idea is that throughout the day, um, like say once an hour, you would do something to, you might um, poke your hand with your finger. And if it doesn't go through, then you know that you're awake. Or you might jump up in the air and if you fall back down, that means you can't fly you're awake. But the idea is to really like pay attention to your surroundings and not make assumptions that you're awake or asleep, but actually ask yourself in a serious way. And the idea is if you do this regularly throughout the day, because we dream about what we do during the day, you'll ask yourself the same question in your sleep and you might get a different answer. Right. You'll notice your finger going through your hand. You're like, oh, Exactly. I'm, I'm dreaming. I've also seen it marketed these devices where you, these goggles you put on your head and they can <laughs> like tell if you're in REM sleep and then like it flashes a red light and then you're supposed to be able yeah. to see your red light in the dream. And it's like, oh, right, I see the red light. I'm dreaming. Is there anything to I that? I mean, I got to be honest. I would start with a notebook for a okay. dream journal. I think there's been periodically, you know, people will get excited about a new 
fancy goggle, but I would start with the dream journal. Have you benefited from lucid dreaming? Like, have you had, you gone into a, a dream, like, I want to have a lucid dream and I want to intentionally explore X topic. I mean, do you do that? So I think there absolutely are people who do that. There are people who, you know, masterful lucid dreamers who will really like hack it and you know, athletes who practice their event in a lucid dream or, you know, explore a really dark topic. I kind of resist the idea that they need to be useful. I've mostly just used lucid dreams to fly and I find it really joyful. But yeah, I think they're fun. Okay. And you also talk about another technique. So you, you do the dream recall, do the reality checks. Another thing too um, is you can wake yourself up you know, maybe before that last REM cycle. So this is probably going to be about four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And then go back to sleep thinking, okay, I'm going to have another REM cycle. I'm going to intentionally have a lucid dream. And that can, that can help too. And I've, that idea has helped me reframe. I've been getting up for some reason. I've been waking up at four o'clock every morning for no mm. reason. It was like wide awake. Yeah. And before I'd be like, oh, geez, so frustrating. I could have slept another two or three hours. Yeah. And now I'm like, well, I, this is a chance to maybe have a lucid dream. So I'm going to try to go back to sleep and maybe have a lucid dream. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I love about thinking about dreams and lucid dreams is that, yeah, it's a way to kind of reframe those interruptions and they can be a new opportunity to either remember a dream or set an intention. But yeah, so as with regular dream recall, with lucid dreaming, the kind of desire and intention really matter. And so we tend to have our most intense REM cycles later in the night towards the morning. So that's also going to be the best time to try to have a lucid dream. And we were talking about REM rebound earlier. So if you've been deprived of REM through like an episode of depression, for example, or sleep deprivation, when you get back into it, you can have really intense REM. And the same is actually true of like taking a nap. And also, so if you do like a quick sleep deprivation from like four to 445 or something, and then if you fall back asleep, You'll probably at the least have very intense dreams, but that would also be a really good time to try to have a lucid dream. Well, Alice, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Oh, thanks. Well, you can Google me, Alice Robb, and the book is called Why We Dream, The Transformative Power of Our Nightly Journey, and it should be available at all the normal online retailers. I also wrote a book that came out last year that's probably slightly less relevant to the Art of Manliness podcast about, uh, which was a memoir about growing up in the ballet world in New York, but that's called Don't Think Dear on Loving and Leaving Ballet. Okay. I've heard ballet can be really intense. <laughs> uh, it can. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, Alice Robb, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was Alice Robb. She's the author of the book, Why We Dream. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, alicerobb.com. That's Rob with two Bs. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash dreams. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. 
As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to listen to AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.